Hello and welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. Our account director Stephen Dale is back this week talking with the channel lead for the rest of the world at Eggplant, Camille Morgan. Stephen and Camille talk about what it's like starting out in the industry, how to tackle being a non-technical person in a technical industry, and the story of the recent acquisition of Eggplant by Keysight. Over to you, Stephen. Eggplant's motto is to rid the world of bad software. They started as a business in 2008 and are considered leaders in software testing by both Gartner and Forrester. Whether companies are launching new software, scaling existing software, or moving it into the cloud, Eggplant Solutions are covering all industry sectors. They're utilizing artificial intelligence to improve their tools, and they've got a lot of successful implementations and use cases around automation as well. So welcome, Camille. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So just before we get into the main questions, uh, a few questions to to get us going. Um, just wondering, has anyone been back into London yet? How's it looking? Is is anybody there? Slowly, our office is is they're open. I know a few people have gone. I think last week we had up to eight people, which for an office which normally has five to six times that, it's starting. Whereas this week there was one person. So I think it's very much. Uh, Slow progress. I think it's very dependent on how you can travel there or not. So a lot of people that are close to London that can access the office, whether it be walking or cycling or overground, that they're more willing. I think it's I think it's probably the underground of that closed, confined space, which is slightly putting some people off. But I am aware, having spoken to people yesterday, that the amount of just even restaurants and sandwich bars around the offices that unfortunately had to close. Uh, because there's no business in London. The streets do seem remarkably quiet and a lot of businesses have suffered. So I think when I eventually get back, it's going to be a different scene to what I was used to. Yeah, unfortunately, it's people are just starting to go back and, and it looks like things could take a turn the other way. Uh, I saw a, someone tweeted, I think, a picture of, of a tube yesterday and they were literally the only person on it, which is just it's just unbelievable. Yeah. The London network's not used to that, is it? You're just so used to having everyone so close to you. So, yeah, it's been a tough time for them. I, I do feel for them. I can imagine commuters are quite happy to have a train to themselves because it's something they've never had. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of people during lockdown um, got a lot of practice in terms of bike rides and, and posted some phenomenal distances on their Strava and things like that. I, w- I wonder what is a, a sort of feasible or excessive distance to ride your bike into London to spend the day in the office. It's not for me. Have you been tempted? No. For us, it's about 26, 27 miles to get in from here. So um, I, I am aware of people that have done it, uh, not in my family. But yeah, I think that's a that's a long commute to be on a, do, doing on a bicycle. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I hear that in uh, somebody said to me, it's actually not a bad time to visit London because the the art galleries are very quiet, the museums are quiet, and you get the pick of the restaurants, the ones that are still open. So maybe not so much for work, but certainly for tourists, it's still worth a visit, I hear. Oh, totally. And, and it's something we really tried to do over the summer months to, to go back into London. And we drove, we went to Greenwich, we went to the Royal Observatory, the Cutty Sark, places you've not been for a very long time. And it was remarkably quiet, but it was beautiful. 
Absolutely. Get get in there and have a look. So uh, another question. We've been doing a lot of conference calls, all of us. Are you a camera on or camera off kind of person? Camera on every time, every single time. I think it's it's quite funny to see, you know, the reluctance at the beginning of some people. and But slowly over a period of time, the majority of people, have, I think, are still camera on. I think that potential eye contact and, and seeing that they're focusing and, and not doing other things is really critical. I think it gets slightly tougher when you're in a very large audience, so it's a big team meeting or group meeting, to have so many cameras on. You, you, lose, you lose maybe some momentum, but definitely in the smaller groups, I'd say anything up to four, we're always camera on. And I've met some amazing people through lockdown with the camera on, people that I've spoken to possibly for years before that I wouldn't have been able to travel to because of the remote territories or but now straight away cameras on so um you now know what they look like we've met a lot of new people as well and again it's nice i know what they look like when i reach out to them on linkedin i, I recognize their photo it, it's a very different way of working but i, I really enjoy it actually yeah I, I like it i think i've seen a little bit of a tailing off of it some people that started with it i found have, have dropped off maybe because sometimes they were the only one that was on the camera and uh, there's there's nothing in the invite, is there, to say that this is a camera on meeting. So there's a little bit of a, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Should you start with your camera on or off? Yeah, it's interesting. I do think staring at the sort of camera or your laptop all day, it does it does take it out of you. It's quite tiring, isn't it? It's, it is a long day. It, it definitely is. And I do activities outside of work that people go, oh, we'll do it as a Zoom meeting. And you think, no, do you know what? Actually, I think I'm probably meeting doubt through a computer. I'd like to do those activities face-to-face or something else. But, yeah, I've seen a lot of even children's activities, things that they may do on an evening, the guides, the the cubs, that they're all on online as well. And that, that's when you think, oh, we're using it excessively. And I recognise why. There are good and bad points to it. But I do also think if you can do that face-to-face, hence the camera on, or even in person is even better. Yeah, maybe we could do a survey in the IT industry, how many people have been having video calls with their family after having spent all day doing it for work. Probably it's the last thing you want to do. But yeah, we've got used to it. Um, Another thing, you've already mentioned the kids are back at school, students at college. Have you got any advice for people thinking about future careers, maybe starting out in the IT industry? Is it a good place to be? What would you say to somebody thinking of a career in IT? I'm I'm a pure advocate. In my previous company, I, I used to support the STEM approach, so sciences, technology, engineering and math, so how to get young children into that. I think if you look at the options available for IT and, and where it can take people, it's just, it's huge. I think one thing that we recognise as our children went into school, the head teacher said 70% of the jobs that they're going to come out to don't exist today. It's ever-evolving. And if you think of those jobs that are involving, it's probably how to work remotely, how to manage all this. And we've seen, especially through this pandemic, how do we help companies to be able to do their daily jobs if you're physically not allowed on site? And I think a lot of that stems from IT. There's a lot of great stuff around the robotics and AI components that really can help leverage that and bring them into the modern world, allow them to communicate whilst we're still, you know, locked up in our own houses. So, yeah, it's, to me, it's a really admirable area to go into. And I think if you have that technical level, 
which I'm sure as we get into these conversations later, you'll, re- you'll realize is not my forte, but that's a real skill. That's something you truly have to learn and understand. There's a certain mindset that you, you need to be able to do to achieve that, but it's changing the world as we know. This is an industry that's here to stay and is an industry that's continually changing and is at the forefront of helping us keep up with the world and economy as we know. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think we've been really lucky. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday who said if they hadn't gone into IT, they might have liked to have been a pilot or in something like that, which looking at it now, that might not be the best industry to be in. So I think we're lucky that IT is is playing a big part in the, the issues in the world today. I think it's exciting, as you've said. We don't know what's coming down the line. It's making a difference to everybody's lives. I think one of the things for me is if you embrace it and don't just see it as a job and, and you take a bit of an interest in the technology and the application of the technology, you don't have to be technical, but you can still get a sense of pride or build an interest in how it changes all our lives. Yeah. And as I say, when you look at the STEM programs, things we have done in previous organisations, they were using the robots to teach them maths. So things that you and I would have learned going through school, possibly in a classroom where you didn't quite get it, all of a sudden, the ability to use IT and technology made it real. It was visual. And I think people learn with hands-on experience. So yeah, I'm I think it's definitely worth promoting more. And as you say, there's a lot of jobs that have helped survive, I think, through through times that we're in at the moment because of it. So luckily for you and I, we, we landed in the right industry. Possibly we didn't know that when we left school. We, we definitely took a path that's paid off. Certainly did. So that moves us nicely into the sort of first main question. As you've just mentioned, you've been in the industry and as for your whole career as of high. You've been with some big software names recently in your career. I'm interested to know if you think the software companies are embracing the channel and how it's evolving in terms of channel business versus direct business. You're absolutely right. I've I've been in this business for a while. Then I started in distribution. So I started at a similar level to ASM. I, I don't believe the distributor I started in way back then is, is no longer in, in production, but they were across both software and, and hardware. And, and then since then, I've spent, you know, the next few companies primarily in, you know, the, the software vendor side. So the evolving component on how people have that argument of direct versus indirect is channel correct. I think I've heard from multiple areas. I've heard from true channel organizations And I've also heard from startups looking to move into the channel industry. One of my first roles was working for a European company who were bringing US organizations into the European market. So it was our objective to set up agreements with the likes of systems integrators and service providers and give them that, should we do this? So it was that early, does the channel work uh, approach? And that's really what drove me to the you can have some form of direct because I think a lot of organizations start up just trying it. How does it work? Have we got the right product? Does it work technically in that market? Do we have the right languages that it supports? But then actually they see that there's so many limitations around that reach, that speciality, how to get that message out to market. And when you sit in vendor land, what you do, you're excellent at. So we're 
at Aplant, we're great at software testing. That's our forte. So actually working with the channel gives them that our one piece of the jigsaw within an overall solution. So that evolving from direct to indirect is something that companies take on because they see that massive potential that the channel can bring to them. But it is, it's a tough move. I think if you've been a direct business in the past, to put your trust and find the right partners moving forward is difficult. You know, you really have to explore and, and give over that level of knowledge, that software that's been their baby, that's been their product for all these years and trust it in someone else's hands and trust that they're going to sell it correctly and support it correctly and pitch it as well as us as a vendor. And there's multiple partners out there that can do that. It's just profiling those partners, working closely with them. The business overall for the software vendor becomes exponential. Once you crack that golden bullet of this is a repeatable message, this is our go-to-market, this is our unique approach with the channel, then it's very clear, it's very obvious that this is the right strategy moving forwards. But you need that, you need that belief from an executive level within the organization all the way down to the pre-sales guys that support you, to the marketing people that help with the campaigns. So there's a lot that goes behind building a channel strategy. Um, and one of the reasons I came to Eggplant 18 months ago was really to start to build that further. We had a partner program in its infancy, and we'd been really lucky. As you mentioned at the top of the call, we're a leader in the Magic Quadrant. The Forrester Wave puts us right at the front. So we have partners coming to us. So they have opportunities, which is fantastic, but they may have identified one. What we need to do is actually then say, how do we move that? How do we make that one into something that's repeatable for you, something that's beneficial for both parties and something that's a really good go-to-market, unique proposition for maybe that vertical as a joint proposition out to the market? So it takes time. And within the last 18 months, we've really started to crack different messages with different partners. But all that success is then fed back to our exec team to say, guys, see, this is really the next area we can take our technology to. Look at these great ideas that the partners come. So partner advisory boards can help educate us as a vendor to say, have you considered this? So the closer we work with our partners, the better it becomes over time. And, and we then, as I say, go out to market with something that's very unique to us and that partner. And that will differentiate us in the marketplace to any competitor that we have. Yeah, I think the, some great points there. It's the, the channel per se can be successful, but it depends on those individual relationships. And, and as you've just said, there are unique partnerships with yourself and various different people in the channel that will make that success. You can't just say, oh, yes, the channel's great. The channel works. I think it's about finding the right fit within those channels. And as you said, software companies in that fast growth stage can be very protective over their software. It's their solution. I think we've found working with companies like Eggplant is your guys do want to be involved in the sale, the conceptual side of the process. How is the customer going to use it? How can we implement it in different ways? If the channel pushes you too far away from that and says, no, we're going to take this, thank you, then yeah, that protectiveness over your intellectual property can become a bit of an issue. So I think it's about finding that unique partnership taking the benefits of the channel partner 
and, and working with them in a way that works for both sides. So from my point of view, I think if you find the right partner, the channel can add that presence within those customers and deal with the complexity of how a bid or a project moves around those organizations and then leave you to just be talking about the great stuff your software can do. Do you agree with that, that it's channels good, but only if you find the right partner and, and work in the right way? Totally agree. And I think that presence within that customer is critical to us, especially as we launch into new territories. The value that, that the channel brings with the relationships, the territories that they can expand into, they own that. They do this day to day. They they do it with multiple vendors. They have multiple touches into these customers. So it is very much that right partner, as you say. I think the reason I've worked in this industry for such a while is I really do enjoy building those relationships to explain this is where we're at. Is this your go to market? Does this meet your strategy? And does this meet what your clients are looking for? And, and again, that goes back to your point on the complexity of projects. They know where their clients, what they're doing. They know how they're, they're addressing that and what they're looking for. So does that fit within their solution? But there is definitely the right profile of partner out there, I think, for every software vendor. And even whilst looking at the eggplant strategy, one thing we did was we really just tried to understand what that profile is. So we, we don't want to go to hundreds of partners. We really are looking for that select number that of I'd like to call them elite partners but just get to understand what we do and we know what they do and we map across to what they do and the type of customers they're going out to so in that regards that's when the channel really starts to come into its own and you can see the benefits and it's a long-term partnership it, it goes through good and bad phases so it is that approach of how we can work together and how as I say it's beneficial to both parties there really needs to be that level of relevance um, from both sides. It cannot be the software vendor pushing one message that the partner doesn't believe in or the partner going, do you know what, we're going to go here because this is unique. And if we can't support that, then that's wrong. But I think that open two way of really understanding what's that right approach for us jointly is how we find that success in the right partner. Yeah, I love that word relevance. I think that's a really good takeaway from that advice. And do you find obviously your territory rest of the world are there any massive differences globally or is the sort of channel versus direct pros and cons? Are they the same across different regions? We have started to focus slightly smaller. So UK, France, Germany, Nordics and Benelux. But we also have a good APAC contingency. So there is a massive differentiator definitely from Europe to APAC. But even just looking in in the European territories, and we obviously work with ASM in both the UK and France, again, the, the approaches are different. You need to recognise your markets. And I think that's where you guys come into your own. You have that French-speaking contingency, that ability to communicate and understand their market. It's very much like someone coming into the UK market and saying, explain to me how your telcos work and not knowing the history behind our, our industry within the telco area and the traditional British industries that, as we all know. So, yeah, there are definitely nuances across the board. There are some nationalities which are which approach things in different ways, more clear, or there are some that, that aren't so direct. So it's understanding that. And I think what we try to do, and, and again, a value for me of the partners, 
is we really find local partners. We find very niche boutique partners in local territories that recognize those market nuances and, and know that territory, that geography really well and bring that experience. So when I say this is how we want to approach this country in Southern Europe, they might go, do you know what? That's not right. And these are the reasons why And we have that discussion. Then we build, we tweak the campaigns, we tweak that messaging to do that and to obviously incorporate all that great feedback that they've given. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a big patch, but it, it's one that the partners have really helped us understand and, and progress forwards and learn to, to take different messages and work differently in each area. You can see how that experience of yours really comes in and working across those differences across the different territories. So I just want to move on to the next question, acquisitions. So Eggplant were recently acquired by Keysight, massive business that people in the channel may, they may know them as the, having also acquired Ixia. And they're obviously in the, more in the hardware testing sort of arena. What kind of opportunities uh, or benefits do you think that acquisition or that merger is going to bring to Eggplant? A huge amount of opportunity. So we got acquired in June this year. So it actually happened in lockdown, which I think shows the true value of Eggplant that we're able to, to get, complete that sale in such tricky times. But really, key site is, as you say, it stems out of hardware, but it gives you that pure testing across anything from hardware, network performance. So what they didn't have was they didn't have the application space for testing. So with Eggplant, we complete that stack. So now going to market under the Keysight banner, and we will still run as an Eggplant business unit. So we still run as our, our own entity within that. But we really can go out there and say, look, we do pure testing from layer one to seven, all the way to the top, including that application space, but it also covers the likes of 5G and potentially 6G, Wi-Fi testing, hardware, network performance. So there's a massive opportunity. Keysight are a very vast organization as well. They have a very large presence globally. I think they're possibly 13,000 strong, but they have a big presence in APAC as well as EMEA, as well as North America. So it's helped us with that reach. They're just so open. They're very willing to integrate. They're very, very willing to put the right things forwards, consider the best practices and, and, and work out what's right. And in the centre of all of that, the channel's there. So it, it's a real positive vibe that we're feeling. The Keysight family have welcomed the eggplant business unit in with open arms. So it's been really good. And it's something I'm looking to, to explore further with the channel um, and to see where it takes us. But they've bought us for growth. They're investing heavily into eggplants. Our teams are getting bigger. The development teams are getting bigger. It just means we're, we're being able to accelerate all the great stuff we've done in the past and get that next release out and support that customer better and grow our channel models. So it, it's a very different acquisition to what I've seen in my previous organizations in the fact that we can still run as a successful business unit within an, you know, an overarching company. So it's something that's really exciting the only difference I've seen since the acquisition really has just been my teams growing. There are more people available, but the investments that they're putting in, in into eggplant and making it successful have been phenomenal. So it's really positive. And I don't 
previous companies, we've changed channel strategies once we've been acquired and that's not the right route. These guys really are listening and saying, yeah, you're building this. This is really great. How can we support it? How can we accelerate it? So it's a very different acquisition than I've previously experienced, but a very positive one. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this going for many more years and just seeing that rapid growth and, and supporting us within that Keysight family. How do you go on with those technical conversations? You know, how do you keep up and how do you um, prove your value as, as a non-technical person in a technical world? I, uh, I think I'd probably uh, duck a few. I obviously would totally understand my audience before I walked into something. But how I position and the areas that I typically focus on is at that high level business. So, you know, I can talk about DevOps at scale. I can talk about how we optimize user experience. I can talk about our AI cubed, you know, artificial intelligence, how we power the automation intelligence. There's a lot of concepts that I understand. When we get into that technical conversation, I think having been in the industry as long as I have, I am more than happy to put my hand up and say, look, let me bring you an expert. In the early days, I probably would have used to say yes to a lot of technical questions and my poor pre-sales guys would look at me like, oh, how are we going to explain this? I've moved away from agreeing to everything. I genuinely just need to dive down and, and say, look, this is us as a team. We're here to support you. But there's a reason they have technical experts and, and so do we. And, and everyone cannot do everything. I would never ask my technical team to have a commercial negotiation discussion because I, I just think that's different. In that regards, they're probably very happy that I don't go into that technical depth. There's a level of demos that we have as videos and that are automated that obviously we can provide as tools and I can talk through those. You have to understand the markets. You have to understand where we fit. But when it gets into the how does that physically work, can you show that to me on the fly? We're on a client demo with a partner and the client says, oh, I'd like it to now do this. That's when I've got a technical representative that kind of steps up and does that bit. But especially in this industry that eggplants in, to your point, innovation and the speed it moves at is so quick. Our releases are quarterly. Everything we bring out in a new release is rapid. We, we get quarterly updates from our CTO, what's coming on the roadmap. He trains us, he explains things. So there's a lot of internal preparation. So we're educated to enough that we can have a fairly high level conversation. And then, as I say, from the show and tell standpoint, we, we have a team of solution architects and technical consultants who are just so good at their job. They can do things on the fly. I, I, I always think preparation is key. So before we would go into a technical overview, understanding that client's use case, what are their challenges, what are, what are the current problems that they have today so that we can pitch it accordingly. And again, that gives us that opportunity to prepare. So there is a lot that goes on behind the, right, let's get to that next step of that technical overview. And as I say, if it's, if it's a standard, how does it work? We have videos to do that. But when it's really client specific and going into depth on technology, we've done that prep work. We've sat down with a partner. We've understood the client's needs and we've built something. So it means that we show them something really tangible that they understand in their language. So if I look across our industries, I mentioned earlier, we do automotive, defense, retail. But if you take, for example, retail, 
we've got a really unique opportunity in quick service restaurants. So for that, we've got a number of clients. But if you look at any way to access a quick service restaurant and the kind of stuff you need to do testing, it could be anything from that mobile app before you actually physically get there to you and I might access it through the web or how do we do it whilst you're all in, in there? How do they test the tills that they use? So we would then go into the how do we do it very specifically on that message within, say, quick service restaurants in retail. So we take that to that next level. And really, that technical discussion also needs people that are aware from an industry. So they need to be vertically knowledgeable as well. We can't have them just talking overall retail. Well, actually, quick service restaurants is very different to, say, a standard retail shop that you and I might access online. So how do we differentiate? So our our technical guys are are critical to our success, but also that knowledge that we help them bring from a vertical standpoint will complement that. So to your question, really, that complexity just has to be addressed by probably a team of us, very similar to how the client would bring a team of people to their conversations. We make sure we mirror that Um, So we can address and answer them in something that's valuable for them in a language that they understand. I think that definitely comes across in my engagement with Eggplant um, and all of your channel team. I think your ability to communicate those technical concepts, I think it is fantastic. But like you said, you know when to step out and, and bring the techies in to maybe how is it done in the background kind of thing. So I've really enjoyed some of the conceptual conversations about how you're implementing your solutions and that restaurant one's great actually I was thinking about this the other day because one one of our local restaurants had to very quickly adapt to the new circumstances and they rolled an app out in a really short space of time and I'm thinking you know a restaurant's judged on its service it's judged on its food it's now also judged on the quality of the app you know, if you're using a QR code to order from the bar, that's got to work really well. So I think it's a great use case that I've come across that, like you said, it needs that understanding in the background. Yeah, and, and I'm relatively new to the software testing industry, but I had no idea the level of testing that is required prior to the amount of different things that go to market. I mean, retail's huge. And and that could be, and and again, we saw it across the pandemic. There were a lot of retailers that moved to online. Actually, how did they track all their orders? How did they make sure everything was working? How was all of that testing there to check the stock was in the warehouse that was being delivered to the next place? So there is so much that goes on in the background that we all use from a day-to-day standpoint that it wouldn't even cross our minds that actually, as you say, that user experience really still needs to be second to none. We have such a limited patience when it comes to online shopping or managing anything that we can do and that we we can access. So we have that finite period that says we need to get on to X website. How do we do that? But all the stuff that goes on in the background, how have they tested that? How have they made sure that they've got those products? It's been a real eye-opener for me working at Eggplant because I was quite naive and thinking, yep, I just jump on the website, it's all there. But they people would have spent hours making sure that it is all there and it is correct. Yeah, I think there's a lot to take in. Like you said, it's not just about the technology, it's, it's about how it's applied and all the different stakeholders sort of implementing a, a new way of doing things. I think that's our, our role as channel professionals 
is is very often to be that communicator to sit in between the technical people the budget holders the customers and almost be the mediator of the terminology you know we need to hear some technical terms and that perhaps needs dumbing down when you're explaining it to a budget holder or or a customer and i think that's how we can play a, a really important role in that i think from my experience of dealing with complex technical people i was really surprised when i sat in on a few technical conferences and i'm sat there thinking this is going to go right over my head i'm, I'm not going to have a clue um what they're talking about i hope i hope the buffet is good and lunchtime comes quickly but then what i found is there was a room full of technical people and they they decided that they need to learn how to portray their technical solutions and messages in business speak rather than technical speak so they were almost sat there going how can we communicate with guys like steve over here to tell them the wonderful thing that we're planning of doing without using all those acronyms and and terms that they won't understand so I, I was really shocked at that and I thought it was a a real encouraging move forward from technical people. And I was reading uh, your website, there was a blog on there titled Don't Talk Tech, Talk Culture. And it, it, I really enjoyed that because it was similar to my experience in terms of we can all sit down and talk technical stuff, but sometimes it, it's the culture, the balance of the people in the room that have got different skills the different way in people communicate. And if you can pull all that together, then those technical solutions have got a lot more chance of success. I, I totally agree. And, and also how to communicate is critical. When we talk about testing, it would be at that level of how do you test those business applications to modernize and move to things like cloud for remote working? So that's a concept that actually behind that, there's an awful lot that happens. How do you do that business continuity across your businesses? What, what are you looking to achieve? So it is very much, I think that's a common language in our organization between us and the technical teams. Yeah, I think that's a, a sort of great way for us to bring it to a bit of a summary, really. It's a great industry to be in. It's really exciting. But for anyone getting into it who thinks it's overly complex or complicated or they don't understand the terminology stick with it there's a lot of opportunities in the channel you can be part of that broader solution i think you mentioned the word relevance as an individual in a team of channel people or in the it industry you can find your place and with experience over time you can be relevant and and have a really great career in in the channel yeah, and I, I would promote the channel every time. I've enjoyed my career working in different software vendors across the channel. Camille, I've really enjoyed learning from your experience and some great stuff there. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you as well. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of ASM Connected. Over the next few weeks, we've got some more great guests joining us on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss out. If you'd enjoyed this episode, then we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on your podcast app of choice. Finally, if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at ASM, head over to our website at asmtech.com.